Lab Podcast. I'm Lindsay Knoll. And I'm Chris Heine. And this week we've got something special for you guys to listen to. Justin Oaksford joined us all the way from Seattle to talk a little bit about his practice and his day-to-day work at 343 Industries. Yeah, 343 is responsible for working on the franchise Halo, uh, and Justin does a lot of the visual design for that, as well as doing freelance illustration and gallery work. Justin was one of the 20-some artists that joined us for the 2015 Iceland Residency Program. If you haven't heard a little bit about that program quite yet, you're welcome to check out the Folk exhibition, which is both online and in the gallery right now, as well as check out the 2017 program information. It's right there on the front page. You can click on the button right in the center and uh, learn a little bit about what the Iceland Residency really is. Each year we take a handful of artists to Iceland to learn, discover, and explore together. It's a program that incorporates artist-led workshops as well as on-location sketching, drawing, and exploration. If you're interested in the program, feel free to take a look at all the information online, and we're accepting applications for that through July 15th. Speaking of July 15th, that is the opening reception of Never Odd or Even, which just closed up its call for art. People are busy making artwork for it right as we speak. It's a show about duality, kind of the yin and yang of things, and we're getting a lot of really awesome concepts coming in from artists from all over the world for that one. I think we have 60 artists or so in this new show, so you guys should definitely check it out. The opening reception is on Friday, July 15th from 7 to 10 p.m. And before then, if you're looking for something to do, We have a game night coming up Thursday, June 16th, and the theme is Crime Pays, so we're going to be playing things like Burgo Brothers, where it's a Ocean's Eleven-style bank heist with all sorts of wacky powers and characters, and we're going to be playing games about Wild West and all sorts of lighthearted crime-related games. That sounds exciting. Yeah. So keep an eye out for a new page that's going to be coming up on our website. We've redone the whole travel program for you guys so that you can see the upcoming trips to places around the United States and beyond. We have a new program starting this, uh, I think it's piloting this month. Both Chris and Jenny are taking people to Ireland. And so uh, that program is called the International Culture Tour. It kind of takes a little bit of the exploratory aspect of our residency program, but mixes it with the culture, the food, the people, the dancing and the singing, which you're going to do plenty of, right? Uh, We'll see. (laughs) All of the cool stuff that comes with being in a different place and really experiencing the culture while you're there. And so more information about that program will be available on our website very, very soon. Uh, Keep an eye out on Wednesday. But again, if you've ever seen some of the posts from us at Bryce Canyon and Zion, Grand Teton and Yellowstone, you'll get kind of a comprehensive overview of our entire upcoming program list and more information on how to be involved. And without further ado, here's Justin's lecture from the Hildefolk opening. Thanks, you guys, for coming tonight. Um, we're really excited uh, for the Haldu Folk exhibition. This is a culmination of work from artists that have joined us on the Light Gray Art Lab Iceland Residency Program. So every year we take a group full of artists that come from all over the world to learn together, explore the landscape, and absorb whatever they can from each other and their adventure, and then reflect on that with the artwork as well as with the people that they were with. So as you guys are listening tonight, you're going to hear Justin Oaksford. We're actually going to introduce him in just a moment. Here he is. So (laughs) um, he joined us this last time. And again, as you look around, you'll notice his name on the work as well as other people's names who we encourage you guys to take a look at their bios and and see what their reflections are like. We do have Twinkle, the gallery dog, who is watching. (laughs) He... (laughs) 
He's very serious about this artist talk. You'll probably see him around too, but we'll get everything out of here for you so that way you guys can walk around. We do have refreshments and things that are in the other room, but um, a little bit before 8 o'clock, that'll be open to the public, of course. And we encourage you guys to say hi to Justin, ask him a bunch of questions during his talk and afterwards, and um, have a good time. So if there's anything you need, let us know. But I'll hand it over to Jenny Bookler, um, our gallery manager. She can talk a little bit more about what's happening tonight. Welcome, you guys. Um, we are very excited and pleased to have Justin Oaksford. Uh, we have worked with him in many exhibitions, many publications, and traveled with him last year to Iceland for the Light Great Iceland Residency, as well as the Light Great Art Camp to Zion National Park and uh, Bryce Canyon National Park. Um, so we've worked with him several times and had an absolute pleasure working with him in all the projects and um, seeing all of his artwork come to life. Uh, so he is currently living and working in Seattle, Washington at 343 Industries, where he does concept art, as well as he's a freelance illustrator. So we're very excited to welcome him tonight, see a little bit about his practice, um, hear his thoughts on illustration, and see what he's been up to. So will you guys uh, help me welcome Justin? So hello, my name is Justin Oaksford, as you heard. I am from Seattle, Washington. I'm not from Seattle, but I came here from Seattle. I work in Seattle. I am a concept artist in the game industry, uh, 343 Industries. I work on the Halo series. I went to school at Art Center College of Design in Pasadena, California for industrial design. And I do freelance illustration. I've taught at DigiPen Institute of Technology. And I do mentorships on the side once in a while for uh, young aspiring artists. First, uh, I'm going to walk through some of my personal work to give you guys an introduction to who I am as an artist. I, I kind of run the gamut through characters, environments, props, and all sorts of things. As a concept artist, what our job is, I guess, as a, as a way to give you a, a primer, uh, is we draw things and create things before they're built. Uh, if you can think of like a, a chair and a woodworker having to make a chair, they need draw or like an architect really, building a house. They need plans drawn up and they need to know what it looks like and make, make creative decisions before they hand it over to the contractors to build. And we kind of effectively do the same thing. It's as, as much drawing and painting as it is thinking. A lot of these are, are more animated in, in style. They're uh, a little bit more exaggerated and over the top in, in mood and color. Uh, I grew up in Florida around Tampa Bay. It's very flat there, but what they lack in mountains, they make up for in clouds. And I think that kind of manifests itself in terms of like the way that I view light. You can see a lot of my work involves uh, lighting very heavily, and I blame Florida for that. Um, I developed as an artist pretty traditionally as an illustrator, and then got industrial design training when I went to school. So it's kind of two sides of uh, the drawing coin, one more technical and one more stylistic. This is some of the work that I do in my day-to-day -day job. I draw three views of, of an armor like this that is handed off to a 3D artist uh, for them to build in a program so that uh, it can be played in the game. These take generally four to five days to do, and it involves a lot of kind of thumbnail work ahead of time that are rough. These are like very tight, finished uh, pieces of, of work that get pretty detailed, um, and you do your best to describe the form as dimensionally as possible so that the sculptors can reproduce it uh, faithfully. So what were these for specifically? The video game series Halo. It's Halo 5, which came out uh, last October. These are armor suits that you wear in the multiplayer. So as you were talking about sort of being an architect, and we're sort of seeing the difference between some of the stuff you do during the day um, for work and things that you do personal work, it's interesting to see 
how technical, in both cases they are. On one hand, you have a lot of lighting and structure, and on the other hand, you, you still have to think about those things within the game and with the suits, but it is a very mathematical approach. Yeah, there's definitely a line between uh, what's called production art, which is most of my day job, which is this kind of thing that's it's something that's made to be built. And a lot of my personal work is much more along the lines of illustration. It's uh, more about emotion or communicating an overall vision for something uh, that's tied together. This actually is a good, sorry, this is a good example of a kind of a before and after. Um, this is what I'm given for certain things, uh, and this is the what I do to it. I, you know, paint over it so the 3D artists can go back and turn this basically lighting, texturing, modeling into a final product. So you talk about communication. In both of these cases, are you thinking about communicating <coughs> something to somebody else on your team, or are you thinking about communicating to the final person that is using the artwork or, or viewing the artwork? It, it tends to be a little bit of both. Uh, in video games, it tends to be more you are serving someone down the production line. Um, there's a bit of environmental storytelling. Like for, this, uh, for this object, this is kind of like a futuristic iPad. And part of the thought was that people would have these little keys here, uh, the little handlebars, that they could plug into other people's pads, but it would contain all their personal information. Um, that's stuff that's never really manifests in the game, but adds, if, you, if the modelers decide to go through with it, or if the designers decide to go through with it, it adds a nice bit of like tertiary storytelling that is very subtle world building. Hey, <laughs> How are you? <laughs> How much of your um, work is actually based in a foundation of reality? Like, how much are you thinking about the weight and the feeling and the texture and, the, and like, the, the realness of an object when you're sitting and creating? Or do you, do you let go of some of that when you're making? So, for science fiction especially, something this realistic, you try to think a lot about the way things are manufactured. And so you have these part lines that exist, uh, delineating different materials or different... Uh, manufacturing processes. So, for example, you can't make a single piece of wood that's a mile long. It's impossible. Like, you can steam them together or varnish them to make them look contiguous, but they aren't necessarily. Uh, and so the more kind of information you can put in there that hints at how the thing was constructed, uh, the more believable it tends to be. Uh, but you can mix that because it's fantastical, it's science fiction with uh, kind of absurd gravity or overhangs that wouldn't actually function or don't have a practical uh, use in reality. So it's a little bit of both. And the thing is a lot with, with games, with video games, is that there's different disciplines that kind of compete. Uh, you have the design side, which in, in games refers to the way that rules impact the world uh, and the way the player has to interact with the world. And art often has to compromise to work around design's pillars. Uh, so oftentimes, you can't just draw a house uh, the way that you would draw a regular house, because it wouldn't be fun to go through. So the designers often will give you a 3D, what we call a mass out, which is kind of like a small model um, that have, we call them hard points, which things that we can't move around because they're set up kind of like a paintball course or like a maze uh, that's designed to be fun. And we kind of try to skin over the, the fun hard point geometry to 
fit it inside the overall art style and world building goals. So do you think about that when you're creating your personal work, like some of the epic landscapes that you showed in the beginning of the talk, and you had sort of like a spaces that have a lot of realism <clears throat> to them in, in terms of the, the textures and the structures, but do you, do you also utilize that sort of like, let's just put these clouds here so that we can have the experience and not so much the, um, the technical realism to it? So yeah, for, for a lot of the personal work I showed, those tend to be more one-off illustrations where <laughs> I'm building a context for each illustration uh, without it, it's not really tied to other pieces of world building. There aren't really rules in the world that, that uh, demand consistency. And so each one is kind of its own world in a way, where when you're working on a game, because it's all being used, like you see this door, and you turn to your left and you see this uh, Da Vinci machine. Um, and you turn to your right and see a giant lava waterfall. And all those things kind of have to work in concert and be part of the same universe. Where with personal work, I tend to uh, get a feeling, or I'll see something like on the way home from work, I'll see like a cloud formation that I really like, and I'll try to dedicate it to memory. And I'll do an illustration, uh, one of those personal illustrations, where the goal is more to act on that kind of bit of nostalgia or memory um, and work that feeling out rather than work within the confines of a continuous world. Do you use an AutoCAD? Uh, they use, so the 3D modelers use 3D programs that are similar to AutoCAD, um, but they aren't as watertight. CAD is computer-assisted design, but it's, it's, the mentality is a lot the same. So I was uh, educated as an industrial designer, so we did a lot of... Uh, wood shop and, and metal work and things like that. So we got a feel for, like we had used milling machines. Uh, we got a feel for manufacturing processes and working with, with real physical materials that helps a lot when you're imagining these things and how people use them. You have to think a lot more about scale. For example, uh, with this, this keyboard terminal, um, the proportion has to feel accurate. Uh, like if the keyboard is too low, uh, it, you, you, the people can kind of understand like you can't really type with your hands down like that. Uh, and it can break the illusion. So you, there's a lot of things like that that you, a good understanding of physical space helps uh, make better, more functional designs. So how many people have a background in industrial design or something similar when they go into the line of work like this? I mean, do many people have that or do they have more of like a start with their imagination first or just start with being a great painter first or... Like, what is it like for you coming from a place where you're, you're thinking super technically because that's where you were trained to an environment where there's a bunch of different other artists working in different manners? Yeah, it's interesting. So there's kind of, there's a large mix. Like people come from, people from concept art come from a lot of different areas, sometimes more fine art, sometimes more illustration, sometimes more industrial design. Um, so I, I started as more of an illustrator, more caring about figure drawing and painting and, and observation. Um, and went to school to work on the industrial design part, perspective drawing and, and, and perception of uh, solid forms and manufacturing techniques. Um, and I think, I guess it, a lot of it depends on where, like what studio you go to and what their preferences are, because we do a lot of machines and things like this. Uh, the perspective skills and the, the ability to depict different materials is really important. Um, but it's, it's interesting because industrial design is very rigid, I guess, and applies to a pretty narrow set of uh, priorities, 
where a lot of other studios might not have the same priorities, uh, or you might come upon instances that demand a more conceptual or like abstract uh, ability to render or think of things that aren't so concrete and predictable. So in like the, the pipeline of making, like for example, working on Halo and understanding that it's an established property mm -hmm. and knowing that there are rules and knowing that there's a story and things to follow, what part, if, if any, or which part would you say or could you describe where you have ultimate freedom to start creating from scratch? So very early on in the process, um, before much script is nailed down, there's kind of a blue sky, what we call, we call a blue sky pro, uh, phase, where everyone's kicking around ideas because people aren't really sure the vision isn't super locked down yet, and they want to explore every single possibility of what something could be. Um, so these things are more production-oriented. Even uh, in my day-to-day, -day, there are different kinds of tasks. Uh, these would be called just like prop concepts. Um, but things like these are called vision pieces, which is when they have a vague idea of they want a, a multiplayer map set on the rooftop of a skyscraper. And so these are thumbnails, more or less, that are a little bit more developed, just so that we can develop a sense of mood to see uh, what is the time of day, what is the weather like, what is the, the form language of the skyscrapers. Um, and these become, eventually, so of those three thumbnails, I chose the night one, or the night one was chosen rather by my art director, um, and it becomes, <laughs> and it becomes uh, this. So there's you know lots and lots of detail. This is actually a low-res version of it, but um, with the intent that modelers can look at this and get ideas of like, oh, this uh, this you know water tower pipeline is really cool, and it'd be cool to be able to climb on that or or use that for cover, um, or the way light lights or staircases are organized. Like there's different you know, lights with different chemicals, like there's the orange sodium vapor lights, and there's the, uh, was it mercury halide, I think, like slightly greenish or whitish twinged lights. Um, and, you know, this, I guess it's, it's meant not only as a piece that people can model things directly off of, like they, they don't build this exact layout, um, but it's meant a lot as an inspiration piece. A lot of people, that's why they call it a vision piece, I guess, is it's kind of like a guiding light, but not, necess not necessarily like a, Oh, what's the word? Like a dictum, like a, a law. So can you describe really briefly, um, when you start a piece like this, that's a really a communication tool for the artists that work with you and the modelers and the people that put together that space um, in-game, mm -hmm. can you describe um, what what does what is it like in the beginning? Do you sit and you draw different lighting? Do you draw different textures? Do you draw different pieces and then put this together? Or do you... Do you start on something like this and then slowly fill in the details and kind of know what the space feels like based on gameplay? Like, how does that work? So typically, you, like most fields of design, you have to start with intent to be able to quantify what you're doing. So design might just say they want a rooftop. Uh, so then you have to invent your own small scenarios to work against. Uh, so when you're pitching, you're not just like, here's one rooftop and here's another rooftop and there's a, there's a third rooftop. Uh, you're kind of trying to give them not just permutations of what it could be, and they just choose the permutation they feel the most uh, attracted towards. You're giving them like, oh, well, this is like, not this one in particular, but in general, like this rooftop is meant to be like an executive, like top of a bank or a penthouse suite, and it has like a, a stone garden with uh, like water features in it and like a infinity pool. 
versus this one is super industrial. It's like an HVAC complex. Um, or this one is like the top of a server farm or is a fire escape or things like that. You're pitching often against these ideas. And so I guess you start with your own pillars saying, well, okay, let's, let's, uh, it has to be on top of a skyscraper. What would be fun? Uh, and what do I think of the top of skyscrapers? And I think of a lot of large industrial fans. Uh, I think of like kind of balconies and being able to see over the city. Um, how can you can kind of combine these these things uh, in different ways? Like like what's necessary for utility? So there's these you know large tanks right here that are like holding presumably water or other things or somehow generating power. Um, the lights try to be kind of you know, spotty and utility. They're not, they're not like fancy street lanterns that have like ornate sculpture on them. Um, there's like little warehouses. There's maybe you see like a building in the background that has something a little bit more fanciful and architectural. And that kind of melding of like semi-residential, semi semi-commercial. Um, like you look at a lot of reference as well in, in the process, like especially when it gets more towards the detailed part to understand the way that things are built and the logic that they're built with. Because you don't build like the fanciest, most important part of a skyscraper in the middle of it, unless you're trying to make like a bold ar architectural statement. Um, but in general, you know, they're at the top. And so seeing the way that that's manifested itself over the past hundred or so years of skyscraper building can give you ideas of like, well, how do people use the top of the space? Um, you know, do they, do they let an overhead light or do they build sculpture up, up and out on top of it? Or do they build it hanging over the city or do they cut into the shape? Um, and how can I borrow some of those motifs or uh, ideas and remix them to try to make something that feels original or, or interesting? So do you essentially become an expert at rooftop architecture? You do your best. Really? I'd say like a, a, like a con man, kind of. Like, You're like I get this. If you, if you present it with enough confidence, people don't question it. <laughs> I, I'm having trouble finding a focal point there. Yeah, there isn't one. Uh, with this one in particular, because I think it's a lot about getting a lot of detail in there. And so you don't want to really hide too much detail because they want to know what something looks like. Because um, I guess this, well, this, I guess, technically, I would call it an illustration. Uh, its purpose isn't really to tell a specific story or moment in a sequence. It's more just kind of to give life to some of these architectural forms. Um, Versus more of the personal work where there's more clear like composition and focal work going on. So in terms of narrative, like looking at this piece, there is definitely a feeling. Mm. Um, there's a feeling of putting yourself in the position of the character in that space. There's a feeling of that moment in time. There's a feeling of you know where exactly in the space people are and what that feels like. And in game, when you're running through a rooftop level in Halo, you you are that person. You are feeling that. When you think about the bridge between how you set up this uh, narrative and how you set up the piece like the one we just saw, do you consider your personal work like a frozen moment in time? Do you think about those same things as if you're thinking about a player like running through this space? Or how do you approach your personal work that way? Yeah, that's a good, a good thought. Um, because yeah, I don't, I don't really think of my personal work as, I guess, something to be consumed or something like that, as, as opposed to something that you're empathizing with um, and something to be read. So this is more relative to this concept here, which is all about detail and, and uh, you're trying to assemble 
a world in kind of 360 degrees, but it's, a, it's very much like a literal physical thing that you're trying to describe, where this is uh, creating more of an, um, the same thing but emotional and spiritual, where you're not thinking of what, does the mountain, what do the mountains behind her look like and what do the mountains behind you look like. You're thinking where are they coming from, where are they going to, like what troubles are they facing, where are they headed. Um, and so it's, it's kind of almost completely different while being exactly the same. Yeah, and that's why I asked because I was thinking about it. I was like, as a player in a game, I'm sure just one step and a big reveal in a certain area or you trying to, you know, um, go through a very specific space makes you appreciate the decisions that somebody went through to, to create that atmosphere for you. And in a piece like this where you're looking at the pathway and the precipice and the vista, I mean, you're looking at the space in the same way as if you were about to go through there or about to watch where those people came from. And so it's, it, that's why I kind of asked, is it's funny, very different, but very similar. Yeah, yep. Are you thinking a lot about motion and movement? Um, when I have characters in the scene, I do, and sometimes with environments like this one, and uh, sometimes it's, it's motion of the eye, for example. Um, things like using these, the light rays in the upper corner to pull the eye down diagonally, and they kind of, you know, the, the shape of the hole in the rock kind of creates like a loop. Um, but the high contrast on the character always keeps the eye there. Like with, with the goal of composition, right, is always to keep the eye moving within the piece in circles because if, it, if the eye stops moving, then it loses interest. Oftentimes it's like through uh, creating triangles, so dominant, subdominant, and like a tertiary uh, uh, detail. What is the process of critique in your work, and where have you been taking an artistic liberty and then rejected, shot down, shot back to the board? Actually, I was thinking about this a lot recently. Um, there are two, kind of two kinds of critique, uh, or two rather uses of it. Uh, one of them is a lot about execution and, and skill. And so you could say like, oh, well, uh, that perspective is a little off, or the hand is wrong. You only put in two fingers instead of five. Or um, <laughs> like these, these colors don't work well together. Uh, and then there's content criticism, which is, I think, heavily it's, I'd say, most common in commercial art because you're doing it for a client or an audience that has demands and they have specificity that you're working against. And so um, I might paint, like, a, an, a sunset scene, and they're like, yeah, you know what? Like, a, could you make it noon? And uh, I guess some might not consider that critique, but I, I think it falls into that because it's, they're, they're changing the vision of what something is to what it would be. Um, and I guess uh, in my day-to-day, -day, in my day job, it's more often content critique about uh, this looks like it's kind of this looks good, like this is well rendered, but it's not. It doesn't fit the design goals that we've set out for it, and so you need to change it. Um, sometimes there's like it depends if you work with other people in your discipline. Often they'll they'll give you hit tips about lighting or anatomy. They'll try to help you fix stuff that you're you're bad at, which is always always like super valuable. Um, the interesting, interesting thing about content criticism is that oftentimes you're not learning as much in terms of uh, taking lessons forward for future use in, in your work at large as much as you are for that specific piece where craft criticism, talking about your skill level, is something that you can take to the next piece and say, oh, I didn't understand that this thing was working that way. It's more like theory that you're refining over time uh, that you can you can take between styles, between games, between projects. 
Would you say the process is collaborative? In a way, yes. And sometimes it can be more collaborative and less collaborative. It, it depends often on who you're working with and how they like to work. Um, even within studios or within tasks, it can, it can vary widely. Um, I think different disciplines as well um, feel different ways. Uh, it's interesting because concept art, uh, what I do in, in games, is very peculiar because we have sort of sole ownership over each piece that we do, and most parts of the process don't benefit from that. So for example, um, I draw this piece, and I pass it off to the 3D modeler, and he might model it, and he, might he or she might texture it, um, or they might uh, only model it and then pass it off to a texture artist, and then the texture artist uh, will pass it off probably to an animator, and then the animator will animate it, and then a lighter will light the scene, uh, and the voice actor will do the voice. And so the, the whole is very collaborative, but our discipline in particular, when you can point to a single piece, like a single painting, and say like, oh, well, I painted that, regardless of the other people involved peripherally around the process, um, you, it's, it's one of the few positions where you can take a, a larger amount of sole ownership than most other parts. So it's, it, it can, yeah, it can vary often. Sometimes uh, you'll work on a piece, like a design of, say, a rocket ship, and three or four people can contribute to the design of the rocket ship very literally, um, and especially in, in a production environment when making it the best is what matters and not that ownership. It gets more collaborative, which can be really fun, um, but oftentimes there's a little bit of, definitely a little bit of ego that flies around where uh, even, I'd almost say even like there's reverence or respect for ego where the art director isn't going to say like, look, you didn't do a good job on that bike, so let him do it. Um, like instead of, or, or let him fix your mistakes, him or her fix your mistakes. Uh, it's more like, well, that one didn't work out, so let's try it with someone else this time. Uh, where I think sometimes collaboration would be a good idea, but they don't collaborate uh, so that someone can have sole ownership over an idea in, in a way, which is kind of an, it's an interesting concession to, to ego, I think. Do you have any examples of what comes before the finished work? Yeah, actually, that'd be a great segue. So um, these are the two pieces that I did for this show, or, well, the two uh, illustrations I did. Um, based on the experience in Iceland. Um, they are a lot about how the environment makes you feel, especially Iceland, which has basically one major city and then a bunch of towns of various sizes. Uh, but it's really much geologi geologic tourism. Uh, and it really impacts you because there isn't much aside from the land and the weather to shape the way you feel. Uh, and so my goal was to kind of match the action between a human in the space, in this case a child, because there's kind of that uh, ball of clay aspect um, where, the, you know, it's kind of representative of the pliable soul, I guess, that you've, especially there. And they kind of mimic the actions um, where they're like walking up this, this mountain as well as the trolls with the glaciers on their backs. And... Uh, you know, the child here is, is cold and contemplative and pensive, as well as the, the troll. Kind of 
resonating with it while also experiencing this, the same feeling. Um, so I have actually a couple parts of that process here. Um, this is oftentimes what my thumbnail pages look like, um, where I will write words and I'll gather some reference. Um, this was a picture by uh, Becca Olin, whose work is the acrylic paintings on the wall over there. Um, this was one of my favorite parts, actually, of, of Iceland. Uh, we were on our way back from one of the glaciers and saw this giant towering rock, and we actually parked behind it to take a really great group photo. Um, but that's where the, this one came from. I imagined this as one of like a large troll kind of sitting. It was very sad and very gloomy and very impactful. Uh, and so I really wanted to do a piece that kind of was dedicated to that as it was one of the most memorable moments. And interestingly, the weather, we passed that on the way to the glacier and it was like, oh, that's a really cool rock. But what the climate had turned it into on the way back and just the time of day slightly changing and the clouds making it so dark and ominous turned it from, from just a general rock of which there were many beautiful ones into a very specific kind of moment that was imbued with emotion, um, which is kind of a lot of the thesis of the whole thing. Uh, so there's, this is exploring vastly different ideas and not just uh, iterating on composition, which comes later. Uh, so there are pictures of these glaciers, and I, I love the idea of them receding and protruding and advancing uh, over the seasons and over time. And they're very directional because of the physics of the whole thing. And I had this idea of if the trolls were actually carrying them on their back, sort of like capes or like their hair. Um, and so I tried exploring, exploring that, which became that, the bluer piece, uh, Thunder. I called it Thunder because the sound of uh, glaciers calving is very, very bassy crackle. Um, this was, I was thinking about doing one for Thingvellir, which is uh, one of the few places on land where uh, two tectonic plates are diverging. I think at two centimeters per year, which is astronomical. Um, and this one was, you know, kind of just like a witnessing a troll, and it didn't really have the same kind of parallel action between the two characters that I had wanted. Uh, so I, I avoided that one. Uh, this one was going to be a troll pushing apart the the two cliff sides, because think Valir is this it's this crevice that's maybe 150 feet tall. It varies kind of elevation-wise, but it's full of rocks. Um, but it's really amazing to just walk within this, this split in the land. Um, but again, that, that one kind of, it felt fun, but not quite, didn't have the kind of emotional compatibility I want. And this one is, is the first thumbnail for uh, this, this kind of emotional beat. Um, and I actually have some of the PSDs so my, my uh, thumbnail iterations are, are very loose. Um, this was kind of a more telephoto version. There's like these uh, whoop, glacial lagoon up front um, right here. Whoop, right here. And then the, the, this kind of river of the glacier goes up between the hills and the, the troll would be far away but there wasn't really a good opportunity to put a character like in here. Um, I think this is, I was starting to come up with the idea of the, the matched um, actions between the, the trolls and the humans. And so I was trying to make it work, but it was kind of uh, forced. 
even though I really liked the composition because it was very flat and graphic and I was kind of excited about what to do with it. Um, but usually I'll get tired, like I'll kind of do something, I'll move it around with the lasso tool or uh, just try, trying to recrop it in different ways. Um, but then I'll make a new layer on the same file um, and do really rough sketches trying to just feel, feel things out. Um, I think I threw some color on that one a little bit just to like experiment with, with the mood, like very loose and rough. Um, that's a refined, more refined version of it. So you're, you're kind of talking about your, your flow of discovery. Mm-hmm, yep. It's really interesting. Are you composing in Photoshop? Yeah, well, yes. A lot of it is so I'll do things like I'll draw a horizon line first, and I know that I want the, the troll to be up there, and I just do like a triangle very loosely to get the visual element in there and try to figure out the path. Yep, I'm playing around, basically, and trying to move things to like see how they work. The thing about composition, which is really difficult, is that you're working with the edges of the paper or of the canvas, and so, for example, if this edge is really far out here, you get a visual pinch right there, which the eye will just kind of fall off the side of the, the page. And so you try to control it in a way uh, where things aren't super even, so you don't just have a giant like zigzag shape in the middle. You want it to have a kind of motion built into it. Uh, so if you think about just the, the eye, it kind of has you know, an action and can maybe like loop back around somehow. Um, but yeah, I do a lot of these. So I ended up settling on this one, or rather choosing this one after the fact, but I didn't really, f I felt that the parallel aspect of, of the motion was a little intense, and I hadn't figured out a good way to break it up, and so I kept trying to do more iterations. Um, and after a while, I decided, you know what, that I, I did, I thought that this was actually worked pretty well uh, with the, the little character in there. Um, and I actually don't have the, the full PSD, just the beginning of the thumbnails. Um, but yeah, it eventually became that one. Is, is the sketch, is the, so that's what it became. So that's yeah. fascinating. Your initial sketching is in, is in Photoshop, and then do you go out of Photoshop into more traditional? Uh, I actually usually start with pencil uh, to do thumbnails because I, can, I, I draw extremely small for these when I'm planning a composition, um, just so I, I can't possibly right. get bogged down in, in additional detail. Um, and then I'll probably move to digital once I have developed an idea, because that's one of the interesting things about this stuff is that uh, at the early stage, those drawings from Photoshop um, are uh, this is for the, the other one. They are it's not about the drawing itself, like I said, at this phase right here. Um, I'm not trying to draw I'm trying to draw things to indicate ideas, and a lot of the work is mental. It's a lot of a lot of sitting in a bookstore or cafe, kind of hunched over like this, just thinking about things and like, what do I want to depict? Um, it's, and then trying to pull those ideas out into concrete things, because that's when you started evaluating the quality of it. Like, is that a good idea or not? Um, some people can actually just start drawing and they kind of let the spontaneity kind of pull them along before they decide. Um, I have. I used to do that. I have a hard time doing it now, and I'm trying to get back into it because there's merit to both. Uh, it's kind of a give and take. Um, but yeah, this one this one came along pretty quickly once I once I had the idea and the and the reference. Um, and you know, a lot of there's a lot of subtle stuff about like here he was leaning more forward, like he was more interested, and but I wanted to you know make it more uh, parallel between their actions. So it's not it's not him being like, oh, is that a troll? It's it's more clearly like. There's kind of a, he knows that the, the troll is there and it's feeling the same thing he's feeling. 
So like he's a little bit set back more, kind of trying to match that pose as much as possible. I think it's really conveyed. Cool, thank you. <laughs> you guys should go to Iceland. You really should, if you can, if you can. If you can. Now how do the uh, Iceland people feel about you putting trolls in their land? So <laughs> amazingly, I learned from Iceland Air's in-flight uh, tutorial videos about how to Iceland. The Icelandic people, about 50%, have a pretty sincere belief in trolls, dwarves, elves, ghosts, uh, things like that. And, and actually, you can understand why I think when you go there, because there's no trees in Iceland, uh, or very few, the ones that are there are, are, are foreign. Um, and what that does is you see, you'll go along the roads and you'll see a giant boulder. I don't think I actually put any of those in here. Maybe that one right there, like this little guy. Um, and you can see where it came from in the cliff above. Like we would drive along the road and you'd see a big rock and you'd look up in the, in the cliff and you'd see just a cavity where that rock used to be. And it looks very much like something just kind of pulled it down and you can actually see a groove usually in the land where it rolled down. Um, and there's a very, like overall, there's a very kind of uh, relatable feeling to the environment. When you, when you can see the history of it, it's not taken for granted as much. Like in, I, in Seattle, when you go on hikes, uh, you'll encounter some, some large boulders or cliff faces that are actually deposits from glaciers, but the hills are all covered in in trees, and so you only see them up close, and you kind of wonder, like, oh, that's that's a part of a mountain, but you don't really think that that's actually from, like, northern Canada, and was just brought by a glacier thousands of years ago and deposited there. Um, where with Iceland, everything is so laid bare, it becomes very obvious, and you start trying to think about how connections are drawn between between the land, and it, I don't know, it is it is very interesting the way the way I described it to one of my. Uh, residency co, uh, I guess peers, one of the people in our, the cohort, uh, was that it's kind of like um, like a massage for the soul in a way, where it's like it kind of it kind of hurts when because it's like kind of pressing on you and you feel really small all the time, but in a really healthy way. It was I liked it a lot. It was good. I went hiking a lot right afterwards because it was like I, it was like a, an addiction. Like, wow, everything is so large. <laughs> I want to go see some more mountains. How much were were you and the rest of the group uh, conscious of uh, the mythology of Iceland and the Nordic people when you, when you were there? So uh, I did not have um, a lot of like I hadn't read the sagas. Some people had actually. Um, we had there, had a little bit of we had the Lonely Planet books that were a nice uh, little. Kickstarter guide to like what kind of stuff was there and Lindsay actually as it was an excellent tour guide and there's I remember specifically there was a uh, these basalt pillars called the Dwarven meeting place and it was or the council of the dwarves or something like that and it was really it was really spectacular actually and and I think through visiting places we got more insight into the mythology it wasn't always very specific um, about what what exactly, like not names of certain trolls and things like that, but we visited these ghost mounds, they called them, which were just in a, in a floodplain. And there were these large, maybe 100 foot tall mounds that you could kind of run up and scrabble up. And there were little round, I guess you'd call them kind of graves, but not really, but like almost like little wells, sort of. Uh, and they were, just, they were just kind of scattered 
uh, in this in this field, um, and there would be little placards there that that tell you a bit about about what was going on or what what the the myth was, and that was a lot of the, the more specific landmarks. There's a lot of roadside landmarks that aren't actually sanctioned, uh, and so you kind of can make up your own stories. But a lot of uh, a lot of the places would give you a little bit of information there. But I think their mythology is very you know, comes from Vikings because actually the first people to settle Iceland were uh, Irish monks who were aiming for the Faroe Islands and missed. Um, I don't remember exactly what happened, but basically Vikings came and kind of, I think they, I think that the monks had left. They had settled maybe a couple cabins, but not really a permanent settlement. And then the Vikings came. And so a lot of it is Nordic mythology, but it's not as specific as having like Thor and Loki and Odin and Freyja. A lot of it seems in general to be more fairy tale-esque in a way, I guess. Like, it's, it's almost inspecific. It's just a, a general atmosphere of, of superstition. But I also speak, that's a little, I'm kind of ignorant on, that, on a lot of that stuff, so I can't really speak specifically to how they handle the ones who are, who are sincerely, sincere believers, I guess, in that, in that aspect about their, their habits or their specific uh, beliefs. Well, in Hawaii, you know, they got the, um, the mountain goddess. Pele and... <laughs> Yeah, that's. I, I actually heard about that. How uh, there's lava, slow lava creep, and the citizens are like, "No, no, don't touch it. Like that's pale. Just let it go." And I, I think I wouldn't be surprised if there was some of some of that similar stuff in Iceland. Though it is interesting because uh, two years, the year before I went in the the one of the first Iceland residencies, uh, about a week after it ended. Uh, Yatfjallajökulla, the volcano, I think, right, uh, erupted, and apparently a lot of the attitude was just like, "Oh, there it goes again." Uh, <laughs> did, did being in Iceland um, widen your perspective on space? In terms of space, as in uh, distance? Yes, or in just your emotional reaction to it. I think it, I think it did, yeah, in a way. It's especially because of how kind of naked it was. It, it helped garner more of a respect for geology because of the visible processes. Um, we're like, in Seattle it's nice because we have Mount Rainier, which is a big, it's really giant, and if you hike around it, like you can see it from the city, even though it's two hours away. So there's some sense of scale, but you can't really get close to it the way in Iceland you can get right up <coughs> into that stuff. Looking back, what is the biggest change in your professional life sanctioning Actually, tying back to her question, scale, I've been trying to be much more aware of scale and distance in my work, uh, whether it's fictional or not, and kind of how to frame environments with, it sounds kind of odd, but with more respect to the environment, like how to let the environment breathe and be a character in itself, where like does it, for example, um, would it dominate the frame? If you have a massive thing that you're standing right next to, it could exceed the composition which makes it feel even more imposing. And then if you have something similar in the distance, it kind of draws some of the character of this mass because it's understood that there's a connection between them. We have maybe time for one more question. Going back to your uh, talks about working for 343 Industries, how often is it that you have to uh, completely forego what your original concept was um, for the sake of the whole versus how often do you stand your ground versus how often do you come to a 
sort of compromise, but somewhere between the two. So really often. Um, <laughs> that's the name of the game, I guess, is compromise. What's nice is that when you have when you work with really skilled people, you kind of paint what you think looks good, and they can actually kind of suss out what they have to do to make it functional without you having to go back and iterate. Like, if they'll be like, oh, that hinge wouldn't work, they're not going to come up to you and say, like, Justin, we've been over this. That's not how hinges work. <laughs> you can't bend that way. Uh, they, they figure it out, and that's very gracious of them. Um, so uh, it's interesting, most of the compromise, uh, and this is a very contextual thing, but most of the compromise comes from an image-to-image -image kind of basis, like uh, my art director is very sensitive to composition, and sometimes uh, we, will, we will make compromises in idea and content for the sake of a better image. Um, so you might, you might have an idea about world building, about like, oh yeah, I thought there'd be this cool river thing here, and it's kind of eaten away some of the canyon, and there's some things that have dilapidated here and whatever, and he'll just be like, mmm, no. <laughs> It looks better this way, and you're like, yeah, I guess, I guess it does. Is there any um, last thoughts that you want to leave with everybody tonight? Any, any big plans for you or any, any ideas about the creative process you think you'd like to share? Hmm. I have to think about that for a second. <laughs> um, if you like art, you should have a sketchbook the same way someone who likes music might have a guitar. Uh, even if you feel bad at it, you should definitely... Like draw, like go to a cafe and just kind of draw people. Even if even if it's very simple, it gets you thinking in a way similar to reading or playing an instrument, and gives you, I think, uh, more of a, an appreciation for little things. You know, you don't something doesn't have to be lit really well or be a giant mountain for it to have value. And I think when you observe things and and don't take things for granted around you, you gain more of an appreciation for that. Thanks again for listening to Justin's talk. We've got more information about Justin, where you can find him on the blog. And of course, you can always find us where, Chris? You can email us at podcast at lightgrayartlab.com. You can find us on Twitter, and we always respond to messages there. We're at lightgrayartlab. You can find us on Tumblr. We're lightgrayartgallery.tumblr.com. You can like us on Facebook and get invites to events and shows. You can also subscribe to this show on the iTunes Music Store, stream it directly on Stitcher Radio, and find us on Instagram, where uh, James is always posting new cool photos. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk with you soon.